Radiolab is supported by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, exercising, cleaning. What if you could also be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com, Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org/podcast. <laughs> Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Uh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. See? Yep. Oh, Hey. It's so hot under this blanket, Jen. I'm sorry. No, okay, start again. All right, since you're under a blanket, we'll be fast. So you are Susie Lechtenberg, and what is your role? I am the executive producer of Radiolab. Yes. And a few years ago, actually four years ago, 2016, we created another little spin-off show. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States are admonished to draw near and give their attention. Uh, called More Perfect, and it was about the Supreme Court. Yes. And the question that we get, uh, and it's a very flattering question, but uncomfortable one, we get it all the time, is what happened to More Perfect? Is it coming back? Susie, what do you know? What can you tell us? I wish I had a satisfying answer to this, but the answer for now is, I don't know, never say never, but we have so much to do at Radiolab that uh, maybe? Yeah, quite possibly, but not at the moment. Uh, but with there being so much attention on the court, with RBG passing, may she rest in peace in Valhalla, and with all the attention around Amy Coney Barrett's nomination and uh, confirmation process on the horizon, and uh, with all the conversation about court packing and whether to pack or not, uh, it did call to mind an episode we created for More Perfect 2016, four years ago, as you said, that really addressed one of the big questions that sort of lurks behind all of these recent events. Yeah, which is how much power should they have? How much power should nine unelected officials uh, who have lifetime appointments have? And how do they get that power? And why nine? Why nine? And this is kind of the origin story of how the Supreme Court got to be, I guess you could say, so supreme. So let's just roll it. More perfect. Okay, I'm Jad Abumrad. This is More Perfect, a mini-series about the Supreme Court. To begin... And by the way, we'll explain the title of this podcast at the end. We live in a democracy with three branches in it. You got the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. Now, that third branch, the judicial, the courts, consists of about 100-ish federal courts. And on top of those courts is the court, this, this, this temple 
of nine, now eight, unelected lifetime appointees who seem to have this tremendous power. Almost tyrannical power. They are wickedly important, and we're reminded of this. Scalia's death throws a huge unknown factor into this campaign. Every time we turn on the TV. We are one justice away from losing our fundamental rights in this country. Because here we are in an election, and the phrase that you hear a lot. One of the most important things in that election, I think. This might be the most important thing to those of you who are young outside of that. Is it one of the most important things the next president's going to do? This next president may very well appoint between one and three four Supreme Court justices. Now, never mind that most Americans have no idea who the justices are. Two-thirds can't even name a single justice. Uh, I can't even name the one that just died. I honestly couldn't tell you any of their names. No, I, I can't um, even tell you any. I don't either. <laughs> the only name of a judge I know is Judge Judy. Doesn't matter. We all know that whoever they are, they're incredibly powerful people. That they can... Boom! Instantly strike down a law that took years to pass. The Supreme Court reversed a century of law that I believe will open the floodgates. They can undo executive orders. They can even change like these long-held definitions, like what makes a person, what makes a marriage. They can even decide an election. Justice Scalia? My usual response is get over it. Get over the possible corruption of the American presidential system. <laughs> Now, with all the background chatter in the election, it's sort of interesting to, to think about the fact that when it comes to the court and their power, it didn't have to be this way. It didn't have to be this way. <laughs> and it wasn't for a long time. And it wasn't for a long time. Yeah. Reporter Kelsey Padgett will take it from here. I mean, if you go back in time, say like early 1800s, the court had so little power. Hmm. In fact, they were meeting in the basement of Congress. That's uh, Linda Monk, constitutional scholar. One newspaper refers to it later as a dark, dank potato hole. <laughs> a potato <laughs> hole. <laughs> like it was damp or something? I mean, D.C. at this time was like a swamp. Uh-huh. So I imagine there were like, spiders in there, and they said there weren't very many windows. Well... Maybe it wasn't that bad, but still. We think of three separate branches. It's kind of hard to think of yourself as a separate branch when you're meeting in the basement of Congress. Not only that. When Congress actually sets up the first Supreme Court, they created originally a Supreme Court of six justices. That's Yale Law Professor Akil Reed Amar. An even number. How odd. Today, we're freaked out. Oh, the court could be divided 4-4. What's going to happen? Oh, my God. It could be a 4-4 split. What happens The Supreme Court is not designed to function with an even number of justices. You know, um, uh, we're, we're uh, 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 in a crisis. So should cable news be creating their constitutional crisis graphics? But originally, the first Congress, they created six members because they're not imagining the court as deciding everything. In other words, like, you know, if the court split, who cares? Because at the time, they weren't deciding big cases. They weren't deciding, like, affirmative action, Roe v. Wade, nothing like that. They were handling, like, these little tiny rinky-dink cases. And most of their time was spent literally riding in carriages from town to town. Trying cases around the country, and that's a big hassle. They don't even get to sleep in their own beds. Wait, why are they riding around? Well, so they actually each had a separate geographical zone that they're in charge of. And that's actually still true today. But unlike today, when, when, where people, you know, come to the Supreme Court, back then... People weren't coming to them. Why would I do that? <laughs> that's Ellie. Ellie Mistal, our legal editor. Why would I go seek out these guys someplace else to hear my local issue in South Carolina? If they have something to say about it, they can come to South Carolina, sit on my farm, and talk to me. 
got to think about the about the country in 1800 and 1804. This is a states rights, states centric country. All of which is to say that being a Supreme Court justice at the time, it's not a great gig. It's it's rough. Consequently, <laughs> the people who chose to do this, well, are kind of misfits. Uh, yeah, totally. And who are like really smart, but like a motley crew that isn't organized. That's Ari Savitsky. He's a lawyer, constitutional history enthusiast. He says at the time on the court, you had this one guy nicknamed Old Bacon Face. Who has, is like a maniac. He's like the kind of like Charlie Sheen, wild thing in Major League type character. Very hot tempered, had a foul mouth. There's another one who, um, you know, is like four foot five and like really silent. The Supreme Court was like a pretty ragtag bunch. All of this happens, and I think it's important for, for people to understand, all of this happens in part because the Constitution is embarrassingly silent on what the Supreme Court is, what it should do, how it should be constituted. Article 3 says, Article 3 of our United States Constitution um, says, there shall be a Supreme Court. Thanks, guys. <laughs> it's true. I mean, it's kind of weird. Like, if you read the Constitution... Boy, it spends a lot of time just talking about the House of Representatives. How are you going to count slaves? And it's going to be by population. There has to be a census every 10 years because the House is important. But when it comes to the Supreme Court, all you get is like a couple of sentences. Almost nothing at all. You know, and that's that's kind of the puzzle of this. Like, how did they get so powerful? I mean, they started out as these, like, nobodies in a basement. And now they're these all-powerful, you know, priests of the Constitution. The Supreme Court of the United States. Nine men. And women. High in government who sit in judgment on many of the great questions before our nation. So how did that happen? Especially when there's, like, arguably nothing in the Constitution that said that that should happen. All right, so how did it happen? Well... You could trace so much of this back to one move by one man. John Marshall. John Marshall. John Marshall. The new chief justice. He arrives to the court in 1801. Marshall like calls his first meeting of the court. And one person shows up. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean the other? I tell you, they got something better to do. Like, they just don't show up. Actually, it was three, but still. Wait, before we go too deep, can you just, like, what did he look like? Oh, they all look the same to me. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't mean that. He was tall. Okay. He was gaunt. He had a square jaw. It's very jowly. Piercing eyes. Marshall was a, was a smart cookie. And he would need to be, because he ends up getting in this very famous fight with his very famous second cousin that would change the course of the American history, like, forever. Who's his uh, very famous second cousin? Well, just a little old man named Thomas Jefferson. Oh, TJ. Now, John Marshall and Thomas Jefferson really, really, really don't like each other. Phew! I mean, on a personal level, you think Hamilton and Jefferson is something on Broadway. Actually, it was Marshall and Jefferson who really despised each other. And yet they both come from Virginia. They both come from the back country. Why all the hate? Well, I mean, part of it was this, like, family beef. At one point, John Marshall's wife's mother rejected Thomas Jefferson romantically. What? Yeah. Wait, his wife's mother? Yeah, so his, so his, his mother-in-law. 
yeah. said no to the great Thomas Jefferson. I know. But that doesn't seem like enough of a reason. Well, I mean, okay, so the main reason, the non-gossipy reason, the non-fun reason, is because they were in opposite political parties. I think an important thing to understand about Marshall is that he's a party man. Okay? He's a party man. He's a party man. Like he likes to party. Um, <laughs> uh, he, he, he's committed to his team. And his team is um, are the Federalists. The Federalists, they love big government. Let's have a national bank. Let's rev up national power. The Republicans, Thomas Jefferson's people, they like small, tiny government. Let the states have the power. You know, we're maybe even in favor of the view that states can veto a federal law if they don't like it. So these two guys, these two cousins, both national figures, totally different philosophies, and even before Marshall hits the court, they're going at it. They beef and they beef and they beef. It's actually a slugfest. To paraphrase, Marshall, you're dishonest. Jefferson, you're a hack. Marshall, you and your friends are poisoning America. It's like the, it's a food fight. It's very difficult to stop the tendency to view the people that you disagree with as, um, as evil. <laughs> we need somebody that can take our jobs back, Frank, because we're going to hell. It's really hard. We do that today all the time, right? They even as much, if not more than today, they thought that the other side was trying to destroy the America that they had just created. Anyway... Throughout the 1790s, the Federalists are in power. The Federalists hold all the, you know, branches uh, of government. John Adams is president, mostly loved by his own party, hated by Thomas Jefferson's party. They literally call him, like, his rotundity. (laughs) Very offensive. So Adams is in power, and ultimately our guy, John Marshall. Marshall is Secretary of State, one of the highest officials in the Adams administration. You know, party man. And for a while, things are going well for his party. But then... In 1800, Thomas Jefferson and the Republicans sweep in and crush, absolutely crush the Federalists. Like landslide crush? Yeah. Fleetwood Mac style. The Republicans ran the table in 1800. They're going to take over the House. They're going to take over the presidency. So John Adams is like, crap, what do I do? We need to save the Republic. Uh, The Federalists have basically been swept out. But in his dire moment, he has this idea. He's thinking like, oh, I've lost the House. I've lost the White House. Oh, the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court. And normally nobody cares about the Supreme Court. But like in this moment, he's thinking, oh, my gosh, this is my last hope. And in fact, as luck would have it, a vacancy pops up. A vacant chief justice position. Um, so just as Justice Scalia's recently died and there's a vacancy, well, the, the sitting Chief Justice Oliver Ellsworth steps down and Adams picks his Secretary of State, John Marshall, to be the new Chief Justice. Ta-da! That's how we got John Marshall. And John Adams does one other thing. In the waning seconds of his presidency, Adams and these repudiated Federalists jam through a whole bunch of federal judgeships. They create scores of new judges. And they throw Federalists into almost all of those positions. Like 40 appointments. He just throws in 40 judges right at the last minute? Congress creates 40 judges at the last minute, and then he appoints 40 judges at the wow. last minute. If so, I were Jefferson, I would be pissed. Jefferson is pissed. Which we'll get to in a second. But in the meantime, Adams has just a few days left in his presidency. So he's like frantically trying to get all these judges in. Nominate these people, confirm them. Once you confirm someone, you have to like give them their commission. You can't just go around claiming you're a judge or claiming you're whatever. You have to have a commission, like a piece of paper with the formal seal and the signature of the president. And 
as the story goes. As the clock is striking midnight on John Adams's last day. Adams and his team, they're in his office, and they're trying to get these papers out the door. They're frantically signing them and stamping them. I just imagine, like, young boys sprinting through the dead of night <laughs> with these, waving these papers over their head. Your commission! Your commission! And in fact, the, the, like, I think totally apocryphal story is that Jefferson's attorney general, like, busts in the door at midnight, and he's like, put down your pen, you know? <laughs> don't do it. So, but apparently some of the commissions don't get delivered. They just are left sitting on the desk because it is... Was it like an oversight or something or clerical error? It's not even like a... They they just ran out of time. Wow. But they thought like if a couple are left on the desk, it's no big deal. Because like it's a signed commission from the president. It's like still a binding document. The fact that it wasn't formally delivered, you know, you still get your appointment. So this sets up this like kind of terrible situation for Jefferson. He shows up the next day to take power... And the judiciary is filled with ghosts of presidential appointees past. Just a bastion of partisan judges. So, as you can imagine, Jefferson and his friends think that this this is not fair. (laughs) Jefferson sees Marshall and all of the other judges that Adams appointed as Adams' spies on his administration. So Jefferson, he decides to immediately retaliate because, you know, he won the presidency. He won by a lot. And he's like, you're shoving all these judges down my throat? And on top of that, the guy you've named to be the head of the judges, the head of the Supreme Court, is my evil second cousin? What? What is this? So Jefferson is running the country and working with the Republican Congress to, among other things... Cancel the Supreme Court term for 1802. <laughs> <laughs> they so, just canceled the whole term? They just canceled it. They were what did like, they say? Like, go home? Yeah, they were like, there's no more Supreme Court. Sorry. Imagine if that happened today. When Obama's plan for immigration got smacked down, imagine him, like, instead of having, like, that peaceful press conference where he, like, shows his disappointment, imagine instead he was like, Supreme Court? Go to your room. No good punks. That's right. Anyhow. Marshall is sent away for over a year. There's no full Supreme Court meetings. And when he comes back, it's pretty clear to him that the Supreme Court, it's on life support. The Republicans could pull the plug at any minute. Marshall knows already that there there are rumblings that one of his colleagues, a man named Chase. Old bacon face. You know. That guy. Should be impeached. So when he sees this motley crew in a dark, dank potato hole, he's like, I got to do something. We're fighting for our life here. I was thinking about this on the way over, and it kind of reminds me of, you know, those like summer camp movies where there's like a baseball team and they're like super ragtag and like can't get it together. And then like at the end, they have to like play the really good team with like the nice professional uniforms. That's kind of like the judges on the Supreme Court. And Marshall was kind of like the counselor, the camper, you know, the the new kid on the block who, who comes to the team and is like, we can do this, guys. We can do it. Cue 80s movie training montage. He knows that if the U.S. is even going to have a court system with the Supreme Court, he's got to beef this team up. One of the first things that Marshall does is just professionalize the judiciary. Like, so for example, he starts this tradition of wearing black robes. That made them look the part. The judges appeared in their robes of justice. He figured that the black robes would make them look 
less like partisan hacks and, and, and more like they're floating above the fray beyond politics. Next, he moves all the justices into this one dorm. The same rooming house. No wives, no family, all business. He's trying to create that more perfect union in the judiciary. And just to grease the wheels a little bit. Have some Madeira, my dear. <laughs> Is that some wine? Yes, it's a fortified wine. Justice Marshall would order it in great quantities. That, many scholars think, was part of John Marshall's secret. Okay, so he's professionalizing the team, he's getting them together, and then they get put to the test in 1803. It's a cousin-on-cousin smackdown. That's coming up when we continue. This is more perfect. Hi, this is Nele from Hamburg, Germany. Radiolab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Science reporting on Radiolab is supported in part by Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Radiolab is supported by Babbel. Sometimes self-improvement can feel like a pretty overwhelming journey. So what if this year you just got a tiny bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app with quick 10-minute lessons that have been handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. You can learn everything you need to have real-world conversations, café s'il vous plaît, from vocabulary words to culture and more. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a few months or a full year. Here is a special limited-time deal for Radiolab listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash radiolab. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash radiolab, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Radiolab. Rules and restrictions may apply. Radiolab is supported by Zbiotics. If you've been looking for some help waking up refreshed after a fun night out, Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is a genetically engineered probiotic invented by scientists to help tackle rough mornings after drinking. This probiotic is the first drink of the night for a better tomorrow, as it works to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com slash Radiolab to get 15% off your first order when you use Radiolab at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money-back guarantee. If you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com slash Radiolab and use the code Radiolab at checkout for 15% off. While some colleges ramped up police presence on campus, others responded to protest against Israel's war in Gaza by giving students a seat at the table. I'm Kai Wright, and on the next Notes from America, meet a young negotiator from Brown University. We'll explore what divestment actually means and how views of victory in this movement vary depending on where you sit. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
Gay. I'm Jad Abumrad. Back to our story from Kelsey Paget, and we arrive at the pivotal moment, the cousin-on-cousin smackdown that would change America. Okay, so remember how Ari told us that some of those commissions didn't get delivered? Yeah. I think five. And that they were just like sitting on a desk somewhere? Mm-hmm. And how they thought it wasn't a big deal? Because it's still a binding document. Well, when Jefferson comes to power, apparently he finds those papers and is like, oh, look at this. You didn't deliver these commissions. Guess you can't get those positions. Sorry. And one of the people that... um lost out because their commission did not get delivered was one Mr. William Marbury. He was a businessman. 39 years of age. He got appointed to be Justice of the Peace. It's a pretty low-ranking position. So he's sitting there, he's waiting for his commission to show up, and, like, of course it never does. And it finally dawns on him, like, oh, the Jefferson administration has it. I'm gonna go get it. He files a lawsuit. So, and what he does is actually ends up being really important, but he files a lawsuit directly in the Supreme Court. Wait, you can do that? You can just go right to the Supreme Court? Like first? Well, at this time, Congress had just passed a law that said, like, in certain very strange circumstances, you can just go directly to the Supreme Court. He goes directly to the Supreme Court and he says, I have a right. I have a legal right. I want you, the Supreme Court to order Thomas Jefferson, give me that darn piece of paper that says I'm really a judge. The case gets named Marbury v. Madison because James Madison is Jefferson's secretary of state, who he's actually suing, but he's essentially suing the president. Forcing Marshall in the court to have this confrontation with Jefferson. So now it's the showdown. It's between Marshall's ragtag team and Jefferson. So basically what happens is the court has a trial. Marbury and his lawyers, they get up there and they're like, what happened to the papers? Where is the commission? Did you have them? What'd you do with them? Jefferson's people get up there and say, I don't know what you're talking about. I won't answer the question of what happened to them. They stonewall. To which Marbury's lawyers are like, seriously? These are all like important official documents signed by the president. Like, no one knows what happened to them. Like, <laughs> like They go back and forth. Back and forth. Things get very tense. And, you know, I mean, to their credit, like no one like gets punched out. Eventually, they stop arguing about whether or not the papers exist. And they're like, this is the more important question. Does the Jefferson administration have to honor those papers? Do they have to give the commission to Marbury? Are they required? Is there a legal requirement that they give it to him? And in Marshall's head, it's a resounding... Hell yeah. He should have gotten that commission. Because the law is the law. And if you decide you're not going to follow the law just because you don't like the guy who made the law, or you don't think it's fair... That's anarchy. I mean, that's we, we talk a lot in this country. We pat ourselves on the back in this country about our peaceful transfer of power. Ellie Mistal again. About how we seamlessly can go from one party to the other party without bloodshed in the streets and whatever. Yeah, good for us. We, but, but how do we actually get to that point? And this is a key reason why we've gotten to that point, because the decisions of the past administration still hold value even when that administration is kicked out of office, kind of overthrown by popular vote. Their decisions still have, still have sway, still have legal force. Jefferson was quite obviously uh, negating that. So Marshall wants to say to Jefferson, you know, suck it up, cousin. Give this guy his papers. You're an official. Do your job. But he thinks twice. He understands how weak his court is. According to Akhil Amar, Marshall's afraid that if he orders Jefferson to give over those papers, Jefferson is going to straight up laugh in his face and say, you and what army? I'm not going to do it. Literally, they just got back from a 
congressionally mandated you can't come to work time. Jefferson knows full well that he has no intention of granting that commission. He will never give that commission. Jefferson knows this. Marshall knows this. Marshall knows that if he tells Jefferson to give him the commission, Jefferson is going to ignore him, and then the power of the Supreme Court basically evaporates. Because Ellie says, like, if you think about it, if the executive branch is going to say kind of right at the jump that if you make a decision that I don't like, I'm just going to ignore that, then every executive branch going on from Jefferson throughout the rest of our history is going to just ignore the Supreme Court when the Supreme Court does something that the executive doesn't like. So basically, Marshall's kind of stuck. If he rules for Jefferson, he's selling out the law and he's going to make the court look weak. If he rules against Jefferson, Jefferson's going to ignore the court and they're going to look weak. Either way... Jefferson wins. And either way, the Supreme Court maybe disappears forever. Marshall needed to find a way um, to get through this. He needed to find some way to kick this case. To be clear, John Marshall is running away from a fight with Thomas Jefferson. He says all sorts of things, but he knows that Thomas Jefferson, you know, straight up has more power, and so he's retreating. Wow, this like suddenly feels like an apocalyptical moment. Yeah. What does he do? Well, so the thing that he does, it's like the most Jedi masterish thing ever. He writes this 100-something page decision, and in the beginning... If you actually read the decision, it's a lot of pages of telling Jefferson how he's wrong, how he can't do what he did, how he's, you know, ruining America. Right? There's a lot of that in the Marshall decision. But then, when he gets to the matter at hand, he does this little... shift. So he says, okay, hold up. Yes. Marbury is right. He should have gotten that commission. And... Yes. Mr. Jefferson should not be doing this. But... We, the Supreme Court... We don't have jurisdiction to hear this case. Court needs to have the power to hear a case. And if a court doesn't have the power to hear a case, even if you are completely right, even if your position is right, you can't get relief. Wait, why would he say that they don't have jurisdiction? What's well, their... so this is like where he uses the force. You know, earlier I had mentioned that Marbury brought this case under a law Congress had passed that said Marbury could come straight to the Supreme Court, like for this kind of situation. Well, John Marshall, he goes back to his constitution. He's reading around. He's like, oh, he's mm, trying to figure out like what he can do here. And he finds this little sentence. Yeah. So it's Article 3, Section 2. In the Constitution. Um, that says, like, basically, you're not supposed to go to the Supreme Court first. You're supposed to go to a different court and then the Supreme Court. It's an appeals court. Wonky. <laughs> exactly. But, but he basically tells Marbury, the plaintiff. You came in and you came to the Supreme Court first. And you did that because Congress passed a law that said that you could come to the Supreme Court first. But... The Constitution says that you can't come to the Supreme Court first. So I can't help you. Nope. It's not your fault, Mr. Marbury. But that law was unconstitutional. And we're not going to follow that unconstitutional directive. So you see what he did there? I, maybe I see, I don't know <laughs> if I see. <laughs> well, okay, so it's, you, know that, you know that part in Star Wars? Star was a weak old man. The first one where Obi-Wan Kenobi is fighting with Darth Vader. And he says, If you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you. This is like that, but real. 
Marshall is agreeing to lose. He's like found this way to lose, to like let Darth Vader strike him down. That's actually gonna make him more powerful. He's basically saying to his cousin, okay, you don't have to give Marbury's commission. And the reason you don't have to give Marbury's commission is is, uh, because that law doesn't work because we, the court, we get to decide when something agrees with or doesn't agree with the constitution. So like, congrats, you win, cousin. Oh, and by the way, we, the court, have the power to declare things unconstitutional. That was the sort of Jedi master move. That's the move. Instead of jumping off the cliff or laying down, he jukes to the right, and he establishes a new rule of the game. Unconstitutional. Inside this one highly technical, highly political drama between these two cousins, John Marshall sneaks in an atomic bomb. This incredible power. And in Marshall's decision, he wrote, It's emphatically the duty and province of the judicial department to say what the law is. Say what the law is. To say what the law is. And with those words, he made the court what it is today. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled Monday a law allowing Americans born in Jerusalem to list Israel as their place of birth is unconstitutional. Is unconstitutional. Down. Doma is ruled unconstitutional. 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 And no one had ever done that before? Well, I mean, like, people talked about it, and there was, like, lots of theories about it, and some smaller courts, smaller decisions. But this is the first time that the Supreme Court does it, and he does it in the face of the president. Roe against Wade. Ernesto A. Miranda, petitioner versus Arizona. Nixon against the United States. And that set us on this path. New York Times Company petitioner versus L.B. Sullivan. Today, the court is so much more powerful. It's grown into the 800-pound gorilla. When it um, says jump, other branches tend to say how high. We'll hear argument now in number 00949, George W. Bush and Richard And Cheney we just take it for granted. Three words, Bush v. Gore. They decided the presidential election and, and no one blinked. Let me jump in for one second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, you could, we have to say this before we close, you could reasonably argue that Marbury versus Madison was not the big moment when the court got its power because it really depends on what you mean when you say power. Like as we were talking with our legal editor, Ellie Mistalin, constitutional scholar, Linda Monk, they both said, like, look at what happens after this case. Just 30 years down the road-ish, John Marshall's still the chief justice. He gets into a dust-up with Andrew Jackson. And this is Jackson we're talking about. So generally it was, I would like to do horrible things to Native Americans. And the court was like, you probably shouldn't do horrible things to Native Americans. And Jackson was like, shut up! (laughs) I don't remember asking you a goddamn thing. So essentially you had a situation where Marshall makes a ruling saying we have to respect Native American sovereignty. And Andrew Jackson famously said. Or supposedly said. We don't know if that's true. Uh, look, I think it's more fun to believe that Jackson did say that. It, it works better in the musical. Okay. <laughs> yeah. The court has made its ruling. Now let them enforce it. John Marshall has made his decision. Now let him enforce it. And obviously he couldn't. So to make a long, sad story short, you get the Trail of Tears. Thousands of Native Americans were marched off their lands. There's evidence that they were purposefully moved during the winter so that more people would die along the way. So while the court maybe had constitutional authority, it didn't have actual power. Until... We've just got a report here on this end that the students are in. 
Fast forward to the 1950s, court orders schools to desegregate. They don't, and the president sends in the troops. Takes Eisenhower. Executive order. Directing the use of troops under... Putting boots on the ground. Takes Kennedy. The presence of Alabama National Guardsmen. Putting boots on the ground. Takes force. It still so often comes down to an executive willing to put boots on the ground in order to enforce their laws. That's when the power becomes real. Although maybe not. Ellie, I don't know a time before I went to college and even shortly after I was in college where things were not separate. At one point as we were working on the story, Ellie talked to his mom and she told him that when she was growing up in the mid-60s, and this is years after desegregation, more than a decade past Brown v. Board, you would still never know it happened. No one would know it in Clarksdale, Mississippi at that time. There was a public library, but I was not allowed to go to that library. My father, who was Chinese, could go into the library. So many times I'd sit in the car while Dad went into the library to get a book that I wanted. And this is, this is after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, even. Yes. I'm saying high school. I graduated in 67. 67, wow. Just yesterday, as we're recording this, um, a court had to issue, a current court had to issue another ruling ordering a town in Mississippi to desegregate its schools. Yeah. That, yeah. that didn't happen five years ago. That, didn't happen, that happened yesterday, man. Yesterday. The courts can make these laws. But if the people aren't willing to go along with it, then what do these laws mean? I think ultimately I agree with Learned Hand. He was a judge in New York in the early 1900s. That we place our hopes too much upon laws and courts and constitutions, that these are false hopes. Liberty lies in the hearts of men and women, and when it dies there, no law, no court, no constitution can save it. In the end, for better or worse, we the people still have the power. Okay, so we made that podcast in 2016, almost four years ago exactly. Very different lineup on the court at that time. Scalia hadn't died yet. RBG was still alive. Kennedy hadn't retired yet. As we mentioned at the top, most Americans couldn't even name a single of these justices. We also found that when we went out, a lot of people had no idea how many justices there are. I do not know how many Supreme Court justices there are. I'm not sure. It's either 12 or a couple hundred. One. There are seven Supreme Court judges. 24 maybe? 12? Nine? Nine, yes. Well, now eight. Uh, And so the, the whole idea, Susie... Uh, was that we should know these people. Yeah, we think you should know their names. Totally. And so the title of the podcast was a mnemonic device to help you remember the names of the justices who were on the court at that time. And who were they, just to to remind? Okay, you want me to do this? It was Kagan, Kennedy, Thomas, Ginsburg, Breyer, Roberts, Alito, Sotomayor, and potentially Merrick Garland, if if he were to make it on the court. Kagan, Kennedy, Thomas, Ginsburg, Breyer, Roberts, Alito, Sotomayor, maybe Garland. So first letter, last name. K-K-T-G-B-R-A-S, maybe G. What if you turned that into a song to help you remember? That was the thought four years ago. 
kittens kicked a giggly blue robot all summer. Maybe. Goddamn. Kittens kicked a giggly blue robot all summer. Maybe. Goddamn. Kittens kicked a giggly blue robot all summer. Maybe. Goddamn. Kittens kicked a giggly blue robot all summer. Maybe. Goddamn. Kittens kicked a giggly blue robot all summer. Maybe. Goddamn. Kittens kicked a giggly blue robot all summer. Maybe. Goddamn. Kittens kicked a giggly blue robot all summer. All right, so that was the song. You can, which you can find it on our website, radiolab.org. Um, so here, I don't know, Susie, like I feel like we should turn this over to, to the peeps. Yeah, I think there's a lot of potential here. And it needs to be updated because the chord has changed and it's going to change some more. So now that that song that we just played is outdated, maybe we should just see what people come up with. Can you, can you give us a new song with a new mnemonic, new vibe? New genre, maybe? Yeah, hit us up. Hit us up, right? Classic rock, like smooth jazz. Prog rock. So that's the task. Help us update this mnemonic for 2020 and 2021. Uh, send us submissions to uh, radiolab at wnyc.org. Radiolab at wnyc.org. Please send us some things. We'll update it. The one that like we think is the awesomest. We will just we'll throw it back at you. Let everybody hear it. Okay, I'm Jad Abumrad. You want to say your name, too? I'm Susie Lechterberg. Thank you for listening. Bye. Seriously, More Perfect is produced by me, Jad Abumrad, Susie Lechtenberg, Tobin Lowe, Kelsey Paget, and Sean Ramosverm. With Soren Wheeler, Ellie Mistal, David Herman, Alex Overington, Karen Duffin, Catherine Wells, Barry Finkel, Andy Mills, Dylan Keefe, and Eva Dasher. Special thanks to Judith Resnick, Paul Boger, Liam Toll, Jessica Miller, Annie McEwen, Matthew Matt Kilty, Alethea John, Mead Bernard, Nadia Sirota, and John Hanrahan. Supreme Court Audio is from Oye, a free law project in collaboration with the Legal Information Institute at Cornell. More Perfect is funded in part by the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, the Charles Evans Hughes Memorial Foundation, and the Joyce Foundation. This is Ira Flato, host of Science Friday. For over 30 years, the Science Friday team has been reporting high-quality science and technology news, making science fun for curious people by covering everything from the outer reaches of space to the rapidly changing world of AI to the tiniest microbes in our bodies. 
Audiences trust our show because they know we're driven by a mission to inform and serve listeners first and foremost with important news they won't get anywhere else. And our sponsors benefit from that halo effect. For more information on becoming a sponsor, visit sponsorship.wnyc.org.